Thank you all for being here on holiday weekend. This is typically the lowest attended Sunday of the year, and you're here. So I am really thankful that you are. And also, the great thing with, uh, with Sundays like this is it just gives us the opportunity to speak to a theme outside of a series that God has laid on our hearts. And, and today, the, the, the message that I've got is entitled, What Do the Righteous Do? It's, it's from the 11th Psalm. So you may want to turn to Psalm 11. But a, a word about where this message uh, sparked or was sparked in me. At the beginning of August, Pastor Mike came into uh, our senior leadership team, about six of us who kind of were involved in uh, leading the, what we were called the, the Holland Campus here, just central in Holland, got together. And Pastor Mike just shared uh, Psalm 11. And as he shared that Psalm, it just gripped all of us. This was a Wednesday at lunchtime. And I was due to speak to, the, to all of the staff on Thursday morning. And from that time, Wednesday lunchtime until Thursday, I spent I don't know how much time just on this psalm because I felt it was a word that God had, was giving to us and it was a word that God was giving to the staff. I shared it with the staff and then I uh, was told, maybe you should share this with the elders. So I shared it with the elders and the elders said, you know, maybe you should share this with the church. So I've done this four times already, so it should be okay for you to listen to. Um, Actually, I've changed it quite a bit, but um, I really do think that this is a message that God has for us. And so on this kind of holiday weekend, we think about our nation. Um, I just want to share this, this psalm with you. So again, if you have a Bible, turn to the 11th psalm, Psalm 11. This is what the psalmist says. In the Lord I take refuge. Notice how that begins, please, because that's where we land in the Lord I will take refuge. How then can you say to me, flee to them like a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bent their bows. They set their arrows against the strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes everyone on earth. His eyes examine them. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. On the wicked, he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. For the Lord is righteous. He loves justice, and the upright will see his face. Notice the way the psalm ends, please. Notice the way it begins. Notice the way it ends. The verse that stood out to me was verse 3. It's highlighted there. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? The word foundations in the Hebrew, shath, basically means foundation. It means column. It also means pillar. When the columns, when the pillars are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? One of my favorite places on earth is a little island in Florida where you can only reach by boat. And when you go onto that island and you get there, you notice something. Nearly all of the houses are built on pillars or columns. They're built that way because basically if a hurricane comes through, it's typically in the line of a hurricane. When a hurricane comes through, the water level will rise. And so these homes are built to the level that if a Category 4 hurricane comes through, the water level doesn't go over the foundations of the home, the platform of the home. But obviously the key challenge is how strong are the, pillar, are the pillars. 
How strong are the columns when the wind comes, when the storm comes? Will that column stand? When the psalmist writes, when the foundations are shaken, that's the picture that I want you to have in mind. When the storms come, will this thing stand? And notice that the psalmist is saying, what? When the foundations are being destroyed, there are people who are telling him that the foundations are being destroyed and he needs to do something. And so it's that question, okay, well, when the foundations are being destroyed, then what do the righteous do? Now, in the Old Testament, foundations were fixed firmly into the ground. They basically were laid down in an act that evokes a spiritual act of consecration. If you think about this, Jesus says in the New Testament, I will lay down my life for the sheep. Hearing this, Peter responds by saying, John 13, I will lay down my life for you. So when, when these foundations were laid, they were often laid down in a way that there was a religious ceremony that accompanied it, especially when it was in the temple. And so when the psalmist talks here about the foundations being destroyed, he's talking about those things that have been consecrated to God in a nation for God's glory. According to one guy, Van Gemeren, he says that these foundations symbolize the institutions that God deems important for society to function in the way that he ordained. So when the psalmist says, when the foundations are being destroyed, he's concerned about the preservation of those things that righteous people consider to be important for God's purpose to be done in the nation. Now, over the last year, 18 months, I have had so many people engage me in a conversation because they believe that the pillars upon which this nation was founded are being destroyed. They cite the erosion of law and order, justice, morality, freedom, the redefinition of the family. They'll talk about the, the plans that limit the gathering of the church as examples that show that our foundations, our pillars are being attacked. And the question they ask me over and over again is the exact same question that the psalmist poses. When these pillars are being destroyed, what do the righteous do? It's a relevant question. And so when Pastor Mike shared this psalm, verse 3 just jumped out at me as if it was God saying, Craig, take some time, look at this. When the pillars are being attacked, what do the righteous do? And what I sensed in my own heart is that God was calling me to a posture in my heart that would be the foundation for any kind of practice of my hands. And so if you believe today that the foundations are being destroyed, if there are things that are important in your life that are coming under attack, I believe that this psalm speaks a word of truth to us where God wants us to posture our heart in such a way that the practice of our hands gives glory to Him and echoes our assurance that there are some things that the wicked and the evil, the people who seek to bring us down, will never ever be able to take from us. And when that is the posture of our heart, it doesn't matter what happens around us, we will have calm during the storm. And this is what the psalmist demonstrates. 
So when the foundations are being destroyed, what did the righteous do? Well, firstly, the psalmist says, when the foundations are being destroyed, the righteous remain confident in God. Notice what the psalmist does not say. The psalmist does not say, when the foundations are being destroyed, we remain confident. The psalmist says, when the foundations are being destroyed, we remain confident in God. It's really amazing to me that having asked that question about how the righteous respond, the first thing out of the psalmist's mouth is this declaration. The Lord is in his temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. The psalmist, you see, does not allow his disappointment in what is happening around him to rise to the level of despair. The psalmist does not allow the disappointment of what he's experiencing, and believe me, we'll get into it in a second. The foundation for this, for this psalm is a profound threat. The psalmist does not allow that threat to rise beyond the confidence that he has in God. Let me ask you, when the things that are important to you come under attack, whatever they are, do you suffer with the temptation of allowing the disappointment, the despair of what is happening around you to rise beyond the level of your confidence in God? The psalmist doesn't do that. The psalmist remains confident in God. And I want to point out that the psalmist doesn't simply speak out his confidence in God. He actually testifies to it. You know there's a difference between saying something and testifying to something. When you say something, you often say something despite you struggle with it. Or you say something... With unbelief, like that man who wanted Jesus to heal his son, and he said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. He, he said it, but he didn't testify to it. When the psalmist here says the Lord sits in his heavenly throne, the Lord is enthroned, he is not simply saying it, he is declaring that to be true, because his life has testified to that to be true. Now, the reason I can say that is because the background to this psalm is that time where David is being threatened and chased by Saul. There are two occasions this happens in the book of Samuel. The first one is in 1 Samuel chapter 24, where David is in the cave at En Gedi, and there Saul comes in, and he has a moment to go and kill Saul, but he doesn't. If you know the story, he takes a part of his robe, and then later on he demonstrates to Saul, I could have killed you, but I didn't. Now, you would have thought that that would have been enough for Saul, but it wasn't. And the reason it wasn't is because of Saul's own insecurity. You see, at a time when the Philistines were invading, there was this guy called Goliath who was a giant, and nobody could kill Goliath. And so David is the one, this little shepherd boy who, remember, had been anointed by Samuel for his ministry as the king in a future time, uh, walked up and said, I'll do that. They bring out David, uh, Saul's 
armor, put it on David, but it's too heavy for him. He says, I can't do this. And so he just picks up a couple of stones. He slays Goliath with a stone, picks up kind of the sword, chops off Goliath's head, and the army of God is victorious. And the result of this is what echoed in Saul's mind over and over and over again. The women, we're told, leave their homes and they say, Saul kills thousands, but David kills tens of thousands. And in this moment, the little people around Saul were telling him, you need to do something about David. He's a threat. He threatens everything here. You need to do something. And so he tries to, to kill David. The first time in Gedi, it doesn't work. You'd have thought it would have been enough, but it wasn't enough. 1 Samuel 26 is the second occasion, and it's the basis for this psalm. David is basically in the hills of Hakila, near the desert of Sif, and uh, Saul is chasing him, 1 Samuel 26 again. And while Saul slept at night, David asks for some volunteers but, uh, from within his fighting men to go with him to the camp of Saul. And David sneaks into that camp at night. And they see Saul sleeping with a sword in the ground and a water jug right by his head. And Abishai, the commander, says, David, this is your moment. Kill him. Secure your future. But David picks up the sword, picks up the water jug, goes some distance away, and then shouts to Saul and says, Saul, Saul. Saul wakes up, looks for his spear. It's not there. And then Saul realizes David had the moment to kill him again and didn't do it. Saul realizes that David has spared his life. See, rather than take matters into his own hands, David had confidence in God. When the foundations are being destroyed, the righteous do not take matters into their own hands. But secondly, we do not allow our disappointment of what is going on to rise to the level of despair. Because when that happens, all too often when we feel threatened, we lash out. David doesn't do that. David has confidence in God. Now, why do you think... This phrase, in God, is so important. This phrase, he has confidence in God, is so important because if his confidence wasn't in God, but was basically based on his own ability to secure his own future, on two occasions he would have taken Saul out. But on two occasions he doesn't. On both occasions, he puts down his self-confidence and he actually acts out his confidence in God. See, there's a difference between self-confidence and confidence in God, and nowhere is that more evident than when the righteous see what's important to them being attacked and destroyed. This can be true nationally. This can be true personally. We are never more vulnerable to act in a self-confident way than when we experience those things that are important to us under attack. And in that moment, we may sound like 
We have confidence in God, but we act like the future is dependent on what we say and what we do. In this moment, David is able to write Psalm 11 because he didn't simply say it, he lived it. At the very moment he had a chance to secure his future, he was confident in God. You know, we know as believers that God has ordained law and order, justice, morality, family, faith, and the church as pillars of a healthy nation. But just like David knew that God had called him to lead the people of God, but remain confident in God rather than in his own ability, I want to suggest to you that many of us who are confident in what God has ordained need to be careful that we do not act out of self-confidence, not out of confidence in God. We have to put our confidence in God over self-confidence. And I want to suggest to you that for the conviction of believer, this is our crisis of confidence. Only when the righteous solve their crisis of confidence can we ever know divine confidence in crisis. What is the believer's confidence in crisis? It is not whether we have confidence or not. It is not the existence of confidence. That's never the challenge for a believer. The challenge for the believer is, am I going to practice my own, out of my own self-confidence, or am I going to practice what I do out of confidence in God? Confidence in God is not the same as self-confidence. Now, do you all agree with me? Self-confidence is important. Show me a person who lacks confidence. I will show you a person who's anxious, who's fearful, who is probably not making the most of the opportunities that come their way. May even be a person who's anxious, who doesn't live in peace, who's unsettled. Confidence is important. But you know what? When I read my Bible, I do not see a lack of confidence preventing anyone from doing what God called them to do. Moses felt ill-equipped, unprepared, inadequate to deal with what was unfolding before him. Moses said, I can't speak. Gideon said, I'm too weak. Elijah said, I'm all alone. Jeremiah said, I'm too young. None of them had confidence in their own ability in the face of the crisis. But what did they do? They confessed what they were not and what they did not have. And that confession, far from making the mountain in front of them grow bigger, actually became the very platform through which the divine display of confidence in God was shown to be the most powerful tool that any believer ever has. Did you know your lack of confidence in the face of the crisis that you may be facing, may well provide you with the greatest display of confidence in God that you can ever muster in your life. And on the other hand, did you know that the greatest challenge to the church doing what God has called us to do does not come from those who lack confidence, but from those who are overconfident? David was confident. The time David got in trouble in his life was when his self-confidence triggered his actions. 
He was so confident in his leadership, for example, that he sent the commander of the army into battle, and where did he stay? In Jerusalem. He was so confident in his own manhood, in his own authority of his own position, that he went and got a wife, the wife of another man. He was so confident in the loyalty of his military men in keeping this thing quiet that he, he was comfortable sharing with them his plan to put Uriah on the front line of the battle. And guess what? In every occasion, that confidence was shown to have merit. The men stayed quiet, but what David did not figure with is that God is a God, like the psalm says, who sees everything. And God spoke to a man called Nathan, who was a prophet, and Nathan went to David and exposed the consequences of his own self-confidence. David got into trouble when his self-confidence led him to act before he thought. We don't need to mention, do we, the greatest judgment that ever fell on David's ministry came when he was so confident in the size of his own army that he had Joab number the troops. And Joab said to him, David, don't do this. Do you realize that God doesn't need the size of your army to do what he wants to do through your life? David refused, didn't listen counted the army, and that day we read that God's judgment fell and 1,000 mother's sons died. David got in trouble, not because he lacked confidence. David got in trouble because he did not know the difference between self-confidence and divine confidence. You know the reason God has us testify to something sometimes? It's because in our weakness, other people don't make the same mistakes. David testifies here in Psalm 11 to his confidence in God because he realized that the biggest thorn in the flesh that he had was his self-confidence. The biggest thorn in his flesh was ultimately him thinking, I've got this, I can do this, I know this, leave it to me. But you know the greatest test of lordship in a believer's life is whether we are willing to lay down what we are strong in for the sake of the glory of Christ. Isn't this the story of Peter? Peter was a fisherman. A number of Jesus' disciples were fishermen. Peter's out fishing. He'd been fishing all night. He comes back in the, at the start of a day and he couldn't catch a thing. Jesus comes and says, Peter, lay down your nets. Every fisherman knew this was the wrong kind of fish. Peter didn't say, hey, Jesus, I'm the fisherman. You're the Messiah. You do your thing. You leave me do mine. No, he, he laid down his nets. What happened? He caught so much at the wrong time, doing it the wrong way. Why? Because God can use anyone, anytime, in any way. In the moment when Peter was vulnerable, even with his greatest strength, was one of the moments of the greatest display of divine confidence in Peter's life. Friends, if you're going through something that is shaking you, the way forward is not self-confidence. The way forward is confidence in God. And what did that look like for David? It meant he refused to pick up the sword and take matters into his own hands. He waited on God.
when the foundations are being shaken, what do the righteous do? The righteous remain confident in God. Yet again, Psalm 11, David had the authority to testify to God's control because he lived in this moment as if God were in control. But the greatest battle that David had in his life was to know the difference between God's timing and his timing, between his ability and between God's permission. Let's apply this. If things are really important to us, and when things are really important to us, it is not easy for us to display divine confidence. The easiest thing in the world when the pressure is on, when the heat is turned up, is to basically resort to type, to do what we know, to do what we're good at, and push things through. But the reality of this encounter is that that's not always the right thing to do when the foundations are being shaken. It's possible for us, you see, as believers, to speak as if God is on the throne, but to act as if everything depends on us. Friends, that's not divine confidence. That's actually self-confidence. And the minute we do this, we are doing God's will the devil's way. Now, the problem is, on the outside, nobody knows the difference. But on the inside, God does. And this is why I like what the psalm says next. When we look at how this psalm develops, we recognize that the righteous not only have to remain confident in God, the, the righteous need to recognize that God examines their motives. We have to examine our motives. Look at the next part of this. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. Now look at this. He observes everyone on earth. His eyes examine them. Now who specifically does he examine here? The wicked? Who are destroying the foundations? Who are the cause of the problem? Who are threatening everything that God was building? Because God was going to build the future on David. Was it, was, was it the wicked that he was attacking? Uh, that he was examining? No. The Lord examines the righteous. Why on earth would God examine the righteous when the foundations are being destroyed? Why? I think, again, the, the reality of this statement is based on that story of 1 Samuel 26. The first part of Psalm 11 recounts the advice that Paul's closest people, people like Abishai, were giving to him. David, take matters into your own hands. Don't run away anymore. Don't, don't hide in the mountains. Just end this thing once and for all. Take matters into your own hands. Abishai is basically saying, David, do this, do this. Preserve your future, do it. I think the reason that the psalmist does this is because he recognizes that God has to examine the motives of the righteous in times of natural, national crisis, in times of personal crisis, crisis, because we don't always see things as God does. Abishai was guilty of not seeing this situation in the way that God did. 
when things that matter are pulled down, you see, it's easy for the righteous to put their ideology above their theology. Abishai had an, a picture of the world, of David's role in it, that was driving him to say what he said. He believed that David would be the foundation for all that God would do through his people in the world, and he wanted that protected. And in that moment where what is important to Abishai is threatened, he responds and he wants David to respond in the way that he knows how, in the way that he's skilled. Take the guy out, that's what he's good at. But David here warns Abishai, he warns all of us, listen, when you are threatened all too often, you will start to respond in the way that you are most comfortable responding. You'll resort to type. And God wants you to examine your motives because sometimes the way that you are viewing a situation is not the way that he's viewing the situation. What is true personally can be true nationally as well. And I think that nationally, this is an issue that we need to recognize, that far too many of the righteous are responding in ways that demonstrate self-confidence in certain issues rather than divine confidence based on what God is doing in the world. And when we respond on the basis of a predetermined idea, we may not know this, but we are putting our ideology above theology, and we are making the exact same mistake that Abishai was making with David. See, what we have to realize is ideology and theology are not the same. And one of the reasons for that is they do not share the same source. One of the things that God had to do with his people over and over again is to remind them that what he was doing in the world, how he was going to use his people, was not the way that they thought he would use his people. They thought that because they were God's people, they were secure from any kind of storm. They would never be taken down. And so God raises a prophet after prophet after prophet to challenge this mentality. But many religious people, well-educated people, even theological people, didn't listen to that message. Why? Because their ideology was actually stronger than their theology. I believe this is the same thing that we're seeing today. So many of the righteous are responding in self-confidence, mistaking it for divine confidence because they do not realize that their ideology is informing their theology, and it always has to be the other way around. I'm going to try. <laughs> now, let me just unpack this. Ideology is a system of ideas and ideals. Every single one of us has them, has it. These ideas and ideals are developed in a number of ways. They're developed through our culture, cultural, our political, our economic, even our religious experiences that basically correct, connect to create the things that we deem to be important as our value system. So ideology then is a process through which ideas and ideals are formed through the land I live in, the people I live among, the activities I gauge in, and the experiences that I have. These experiences form my ideology. Now what is the source of this ideology? It's me. 
It's my world. It's my influences. It's my experiences. It's my interpretation. It's my choices as a result of that interpretation. It's my religion. It's my decision. And it, therefore, it's the consequences of my behavior. Now, let's bring this home. When you were all warned a number of months ago, first service, by the way, not second service, in the first service, somebody stood up and warned people not to listen to me. The basis for that rebuke was the claim that I spoke ideologically, not theolo theologically. The person said, I'm a Brit, I'm a European, and the British European influence is at odds with biblical theology. Now, if they'd have said it like that, everybody would have been great. They didn't say it like that. They actually said I was an agent of Satan and needed to be pulled down. But anyway. But what is, what is true about that is that I do have an ideology. What is also true is that every person, every speaker in every church who steps up behind a pulpit to open God's Word has to ask themselves this, what is the source of what I teach? Where does this truth stem from? Everyone has to ask themselves this because every single one of us, including me, has this. We have a worldview. Ideology is driven from me. You know one of the greatest gifts that God ever gave me to challenge me and my ideology? First thing was a passport. I needed a passport to go to France as a high school student. My dad paid for this, one of the few things my dad invested in, in me, and I got a passport, and all of a sudden I went to France, and I realized, man, French people are strange. <laughs> and then I married a German. German people are wonderful. <laughs> and then I moved to the States. The greatest gift in working through my own ideology, the way I view the world, was not simply seminary. It was bringing me into contact with people who love God and who think slightly different from me on some issues. See, ideology stems from me, my world, my people, my interactions. But theology, that's different. Thomas Aquinas defined theology, I think, in a wonderful way. He said, theology is what is taught by God, teaches of God, and leads to God. See, theology is different from ideology because ideology is all about me. Theology is all about God. Now, in saying that theology is taught by God, Aquinas was basically saying that God is the source of all true knowledge about himself. Theologians will call this archetypal theology, okay? The other part of this is e-typal theology. It's how we engage with the archetype, but that's too complicated. The point that Aquinas is saying is, listen, the only way we know anything about God is because God actually chooses to reveal it to us. How does he do that? He do, does it through the scriptures, and chiefly, he does it through his son. So the Bible, then, is that the foundation for theology, and then church history, reason, experience, play clarifying and interpreting roles, and depending on your religious background, there would be different weight given to that. So Orthodox, Greek Orthodox highlight history and tradition far more than the evangelical institution would be, but it's still from the Scriptures. 
And so the reason our motives need to be examined is because when something as important as the foundations of our nation, some things as important as what is important to us in our life are suddenly threatened, it's so easy for us to respond by placing our ideology above our theology in a way that we miss what God is trying to do. See, all too often when the things that are important to me are threatened, I try to preserve what's important. But sometimes when a grander scheme is at work, we can try and preserve as much as we like, but it won't work. How God worked through these Old Testament believers' ideology was shocking. Let's look at a couple of scriptures. Ezekiel 30 verse 4, sword will come against Egypt and anguish will come against Cush. When the slain fall in Egypt, her wealth will be carried away and her, what? Foundations will be torn down. Now who's doing this? The secondary agents, right? God is raising, using a nation to actually bring judgment upon Egypt and Cush. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read things like this, I'm okay with this because that's the evil people in an evil land, and God can do that. That's okay. Right? That's the way we kind of deal with that often emotionally. But what happens when it comes a little bit closer to home? Say, Samaria, northern kingdom. Right? After Solomon, kingdom divided, ten tribes to the north, two tribes to the south. And uh, God's obviously going to do something in the, su- in the north here too. Therefore, I will make Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom, a heap of rubble, a place of planting vineyards. I will pour her stones into the valley and lay bare her foundations. Who's doing this? Who's doing this? God. He's using secondary agents to do it, right? Assyria in this case. Now, can you imagine righteous people in Samaria are actually religious people pointing out that that could never happen because God wouldn't take down the nation? How effective do you think that would be? Well, God's doing it. It's going to come down. You can either accept it or you can what? Fight it. But again, we can look at that and we can like, well, you know, these are people who used to walk with God and now they're not walking with God. And, you know, Pastor Craig would often say that sometimes the question when God's working in someone's life is how low do they need to go in order to wake up? So maybe God just has to break them, take them to the end of themselves because when they get low, the only way is up. Again, when we look at this, we can be okay with this because God can do that with other people. Even the people we love, one of the challenges of parenting a prodigal is when to step in and when not. One of the challenges of pastoral care is when do we step in, when don't we? But again, the rationale for this is, hey, God sometimes needs to destroy what's important in order to build from the right foundation. Again, we're comfortable when it's other people, but but what about when it's us? This is Judah. You know, the faithful. I will tear down the wall you have covered with whitewash and will level it to the ground so that its foundation will be laid bare. When it falls, you will be destroyed in it and you will know that I am the Lord. Oh, it's a little bit closer to home here, right? Does your ideology allow God to do something that you don't expect with something that's important to you? Probably not. But your theology might have to. 
It's pretty quiet. Why, why would God do that? This is why. Isaiah 28, 16. So this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone. Anybody reading First Peter chapter First Peter in here? Right? Who's the cornerstone? Jesus Christ. Who's the eternal stone? Jesus Christ. On this rock, whoever builds on this, nothing will ever be put down. Right? A tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will what? Never be stricken with panic. Now remember, Van Gameren says that these foundations symbolize institutions that God deems important to society to function. So this one, this one here, okay, talks about what God is going to do in the world. He's going to lay a foundation that nothing, no nation, nobody will ever be able to pull down. And the reason that God allowed this one here, Ezekiel 13, 14, was to lead to that. See, behind the Babylonian activity in Judah was the judgment of God on his people. God himself was laying bare his chosen people to build a foundation that would last for eternity. Let me ask you this question. If God can do this in the past, can he do this today? The answer to that needs to be yes. Now, breathe, people. I asked, could God do this today? I didn't say that God was doing this today. My point is that when the foundations are being shaken, the righteous must examine their motives because an understanding but flawed default reaction when something that is important to us is being shaken is for us to A, panic, and B, fight. But this psalm addresses the posture of our heart before it ever talks about the practice of our hands. It says, hey, wait a minute. I may have a right to be disappointed. I may have a right to feel anxious. I may even have a right to feel angry. But if I am a, a, I, if I'm of the righteous, I have no right to be in despair because God has established an eternal foundation that will be never laid bare. Right? And this is, this is the last point. What do the righteous do? We recognize that when those things are important to us, are actually attacked, the, the standard thing is to fight. And what God says is, hey, take a step back here and just realize that my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. And that you may need to avoid the, the folly of David and actually listen to the one time he got it right. Take a step back. Think. And build your life on the eternal foundation. When we jump into the New Testament, this word foundation is developed in a number of ways. I haven't got time to talk about this. One of them is through the use of the word katabole. It's used ten times. Basically means the foundations of the world, right? God says, listen, I chose you before the foundations of the world. The New Testament really builds on this idea. The other word is the word themelios. It's used 16 times in the New Testament, and it talks about foundation. This, this word themelios is used in Ephesians 2.20, where it talks about the church is built on the what? The foundational ministry of the apostles and the prophets. It's used in 1 
Corinthians 3, 10 and 11, which talks about you and I being grafted in on the foundation of the ministry of the faithful. Okay, so it's built up in this way from the foundation laid in Isaiah 28, 16. This is Christ, the chief cornerstone. And then from this foundation, upon this foundation, this is the ministry that you and I have. It's used of our ministry. I would love to have had time to spend talking about Romans 15, 20. It talks about when we have this as a foundation, we don't try and preserve ourselves by clawing in people from other places. We actually preserve our, our ministry by actually drawing back people who've, act, who've walked away from God. In a church city, we can think about filling the seats with people who know God. What God wants us to do, Romans 15, 20, is to build on a foundation, no one else's foundation, build on a foundation where we're reaching people for Jesus. That's the sign of a church. Talks about our ministry. The second part of ministry is what I want to talk about here. This is Paul to Timothy. Look at this. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Now, here we go. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Do you see that? When we are fretting, because the things that are important to us are actually being attacked and destroyed. The way that we build a life that is truly life is by building on an eternal foundation that can never, ever be destroyed. Think about this. When the foundations are destroyed, the righteous live a fulfilled life by building on those eternal foundations that no one can ever take down. See, when we focus on the eternal, we recognize that the foundations of God's throne cannot be demolished no matter what the wicked do in our nation or the world. God still is on the throne. Do you know the peace that that can give us? See, when the righteous focus on the eternal, we recognize that the foundation for our salvation, the cross, it may have been taken down literally when Jesus died, but that cross stands for eternity. The hope of our salvation is secure. We are His. We are chosen. There's nothing that can take away our salvation. Think about the hope. Where does our hope come from? Our hope comes from the resurrection. That is eternal. That is secure. No matter what the wicked do, they can never take away the hope the eternal hope that the resurrection brings us. Now imagine what happens when you're going through a crisis, when things that are important to you are being attacked. Imagine what can happen if rather than focusing what, on what you're losing, you start to focus on what you can never lose. What do you think happens to your disposition? What do you think happens to the posture of your heart? I'll tell you what will happen. You'll do what David did. How he started, how he ended. I take refuge in God. He praises God in the beginning and the end. When your hope is fixed on those secure, eternal realities that no one can destroy, when you're going through a crisis, you will be able to praise God in the storm. That's how it's possible. You know, as God was revealing this to me, I just recognized that I had a challenge here because I've often, I'm going to say this, prided myself on the fact that when things are going well, I don't go up much. When things are going bad, I don't go down much. 
I'm like, hey, I'm pretty calm, calm through the storm. But really, that wasn't the challenge for me. The challenge was, can you praise God through the storm? Do you notice in Psalm 11, the foundations are being destroyed. Everybody is fretting. Everybody is telling David, take matters into your own hands. What does David do? He doesn't pray for God to intervene. He praises God for the eternal realities that can never be taken from him. That's the posture of his hands. He doesn't fight with a sword or a spear. He just raises his hands in a display of divine glory. Why? Because he can praise God through the trial because he knows that there are eternal realities, the promises of God that can be never taken from him. Friends, if you're in here and you're concerned because of what's happening in the nation, that concern is legitimate. But at the same time, it is never legitimate for your default response to be one of anger, one of bitterness, one of hostility. Because if the posture of our heart is focused on the eternal, if we read the Scriptures with a theological, not an ideological mindset, we will realize that sometimes the ways of God confound even the wise. And we will take a step back and we will say, God, I know that at some point I need to speak up. At some point I know I need to act. But the first response isn't necessarily going to be to pray for discernment. The first response is to actually praise Him for the sure foundation that is our eternal promise and can never be taken away. I'm going to ask the... I'm going to ask the team to come back. I've asked them to close with a song that uh, you're familiar with. It's called Raise a Hallelujah. I don't know whether you know this song and the story of it. The story of this song is that a couple were basically in a hospital room looking at their child who was near death. This was what was important to them right here. But in that moment, rather than focus on what they could lose, they decided to focus on what they could never lose. And in that moment, in that room, in that crisis, they lifted up their hands and they raised a hallelujah. I want us to sing this. Whatever crisis you're going through, whatever struggle you're going through, focus on the eternal promises of God that can never, ever be removed from you. And as hard as it is, open your hands. Lift them up. Say, God, in this storm, I'm going to raise a hallelujah because I thank you that you are on your throne. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's sing this with our team.